Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number seven on the War of the Jewels. Uh, and uh, tonight we are going to turn from the Grey Annals at last to the Quintus Silmarillion, the, the central section of the book, uh, which features the revisions of the Quintus Silmarillion. Now, uh, before we do, just a quick note uh this coming weekend uh this saturday i'll be i'll be traveling this weekend down to san antonio to go to texmoot if you would like to join us at texmoot there's still time if you are anywhere near san antonio you would be welcome to join us uh at texmoot this weekend uh and of course if you are not near san antonio you may still join us through our hybrid broadcast of texmoot texmoot is going to be a lot of fun i am really really looking forward to uh, the uh, the content. I'm looking forward to meeting the people again. I always look forward to hanging out with our people, but um, but I'm really looking forward to the topic of TechSmooth this year because it is it is conlang constructed languages. Um, we are uh, we are we are digging deep, uh, indulging richly in Tolkien's secret vice uh, at TechSmooth this year. So there's a bunch of presentations on some. Uh, particular con language, you know, constructed languages. Um, there are uh, some discussions from a linguistic perspective on the, like, the phenomenon of constructed languages. We're going to be doing some actual workshopping. So just as at some other moots in the past, we've had like some little creative writing workshops and things where we're actually um, inventing stories and discussing world building and things like that together. Um, at TextMoot, we're going to be doing some conlanging together. We're going to actually be inventing, doing uh, workshops on inventing our own languages and stuff. Uh, it is going to be, uh, uh, it's, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. So anyway, really, really excited uh, for, uh, uh, for TextMoot. Um, so that'll be this weekend. Hope that you can join us. Uh, the next moot after this is Maple Moot, our first ever Canadian moot. I'm so excited for that, too. Getting, going to Canada at last. We've been trying to get together a Canada moot for quite some time. We're going to be in Toronto on May 20th for our first ever Maple Moot, which is going to be great. Um, so um, that should be uh, uh, that. That'll also be great fun. Again, that's next month on the 20th of May. Now, let us go back to the Quenta. So a little refresher, just to make sure everybody's keeping everything straight. Um, so the Quenta Silmarillion, we've been spending all this time on the annals that it's easy to kind of forget what the Quenta Silmarillion is. I've referred to it a bunch of times, of course. Um, but just to refresh your memory, when he began doing the whole, I'm going to write a synopsis of the whole mythology thing, and it grew into, and then he began to expand the synopsis, right? You begin to expand the plot summary. And that became uh, the Quentin Olderinwa, as he called it at first, and then the Quentus Silmarillion. It was given the title Quentus Silmarillion, I think, in the 1937 version, which is the one that he was jazzing up uh, in uh, desperate but futile hope that it would be published right after The Hobbit was published in 1937. So um, he. So the Quentus Silmarillion is like the basically the third draft of this the you know, third and expanded draft of this plot summary thing. Now of course Christopher Tolkien has maintained the title Quintus Silmarillion, right? So if you know the published Silmarillion, you know you've got the Ainuindle at the beginning and then the Valaquenta, the discussion of the Valar and some of the Maiar and enemies, and then you have the majority of the book 
is the Quintus Silmarillion, and you've got the chapters of the Quintus Silmarillion, um, you know, that go all the way from uh, the, you know, the, the early shaping of Middle-earth all the way up to uh, the War of Wrath, right, at the end. And then, of course, at the end, you've got the Akalabeth and the Of the Rings of Power in the Third Age sections of the published Silmarillion. So the dominant main portion of the published Silmarillion is still titled, is this thing called the Quintus Silmarillion. And, and it is, so a lot of people, when they're looking at this early material in the history of Middle-earth, are expecting that that thing called the Quintus Silmarillion is like, basically they're kind of looking for that stuff, right? The stuff that's published as the Quintus Silmarillion in the published Silmarillion. They're looking for that in the Quintus Silmarillion material, right, here in the history of Middle-earth. But of course, what we were already seeing in the Grey Annals, especially, no, really all the way through the Grey Annals from one end to the next, just as we were seeing this in the Annals of Amon in the previous section, uh, I mean, that is in the previous volume in, in Morgoth Ring, a very great deal of the prose as he was doing the annals, which, of course, remember, was supposed to be just an accompaniment. So he's, he's doing the synopsis, right? Chapter by chapter, major story by major story. Here's the outline. You know, here's the summary, the overview of the major actions of the first stage. Then he wants to write a chronology to keep it all straight. So I'm gonna, he's going to write the annals, right? Which is a, a summary of the summary. It's, an, you know, it's a shortened version of the summary, just keeping everything straight. But, of course, as we've seen, as he goes and writes the annals, those tended to expand. And, and in the end, the fullest versions of the text, when Christopher Tolkien goes back looking through all of Tolkien's writings to try to find the texts that he's going to include in the published Silmarillion, of course, as we've discussed before, the, thing, the, the, the premise that he operated on was finding the texts that were the most the most recent, like the, 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 the latest version of them, that was completely finished um, because Christopher himself wanted to write as little as possible. So in the examples, and we've seen many of them already, where he writes, Tolkien wrote a fragment and, you know, had an idea for what he wanted to do with the story, but then didn't finish it. Christopher wasn't going to take it up to finish it himself. Instead, he would go back to an earlier version that was completely finished that he could include in the Silmarillion. But a great, exactly, David, uh, maximum consistency plus completeness plus recentness. Exactly. Those three things. If there were a complete, a, a more recent, complete version, but one that was just totally at odds with the rest of it, he would either alter some bits like splice together, splice some of the new with some of the old so that it made sense, or he would just opt back for the old. Um, but anyway, what we see when we go through the published Silmarillion, the, the, what is represented as the Quintus Silmarillion in the published volume, and we go back and we look for the ancestor texts of those, like what, what stuff, what documents is Christopher drawing the prose that we're getting in the, in the published Quintus Silmarillion? Most of it comes from the annals, not from the Quintus Silmarillion at all. Um, and that's a that's kind of an interesting thing, right? The Quenta was this synopsis thing. And the annals seemed to, I mean, as we were seeing in the Grey Annals, the annals seemed to have kind of outgrown it, the Quenta, in some ways. Um, it became bigger, fuller, more detailed 
than most of the entries in the Quintus Silmarillion, which, as you can see from this section that we were reading for today, Christopher didn't even bother to include most of the full texts because most of it is the same all Tolkien was doing when he returned to the Quenta. He did a remarkable thing for, for Tolkien, a remarkable thing. Not an unknown thing, but an unusual thing. Right? I mean, we've seen Tolkien working before in, in our journey through the history of Middle-earth, and what, you know, what would you expect to see if you knew that Tolkien was returning to a, a draft of something, a version of a story that he last wrote 14 years before? Right, So it's been 14 years, he's going to pick up this story again and revise it. What would you expect him to do? Well, based on what we've seen in the past, very frequently, we might expect him to... Yeah, exactly, Yarrow. Start again from the beginning, right? Just, just rewrite it again from the beginning. Um, in fact, he would often do this with far less... I mean, this is what we saw, of course, in The Lord of the Rings again and again. Right. Um, he wants to make some tweaks to the story. So instead of just going in and adding tweaks to the story, he's like, no, I'm going to start all over again. Right. And I'm going to rewrite chapters one through like eight again. Right. Occasionally, evil Dr. Cannon on special occasions, you will see him busting out in a literative verse instead. Um, that is a. That is that that is an observed phenomenon, um, but it is not in, it is not the was not the standard procedure. In any case, notice what he does in the Quenta. He doesn't go back, so he's going to revise the Quenta now. It's 1951. It's been 14 years since he wrote the Quenta. He goes back to the Quenta, but he doesn't rewrite it. He doesn't start again from the beginning. Instead, he just goes back to the typescript that was made of it, the manuscript and the typescript, and he writes notes on it, right? He just just actually, you know, makes notes for revision right on that manuscript. So he's using the bulk of the manuscript. So the Quenta doesn't change tremendously. Now, I'm not saying that none of the changes that he, you know, none of the alterations that he makes this way are significant. But I do mean he doesn't rewrite the whole thing. Nor does he even seem to reconceive the entire thing like as a work, as a genre, right? He's, he's not, it's, it's, you know, he's, he's, he's not showing a fundamentally different approach. He seems to be okay with keeping the Quenta in something very like its original form. Some alterations here and there, right? But in something like its original form and even containing a very great deal of its original content. And he's now just going through and updating it. The kind of thing that we kind of wished he would do in some other places instead of taking the time to start everything all over again. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah. So, um, so it's, it's interesting to me that he, even after the annals have grown into this sort of larger thing, right? And the, the annals kept busting out into this much more detailed dialogue. He seems to keep the Quenta at that same kind of plot summary overview he doesn't let the Quenta kind of get carried away. And of course he achieves that by not rewriting it, um, by just uh, revising it. But again, that it suggests that that was how he saw the Quenta. Now, I don't know what his eventual intention was. Um, you know, we talked about this before. Is there a possibility that he's going to take the Annals and the Quenta and he's going to combine those two things together? Um, 
in some way, like you know, he's gonna he's gonna instead of having them be you know separate parallel texts, he's gonna he's gonna combine them together. But as we saw in several references in the annals, where he was referring to the text of the Quenta from within the annals text, it seems that at least it certainly wasn't how he was thinking all the time. Like, did he ever think that? I don't know. But um, but the existing evidence, the references within the text, don't suggest the fact that he was actually actively moving in that direction. Now, in the end, the choice that Christopher made in having to do the choosing that he had to do, he didn't do the duplicate model, right? He didn't give us the Quintus Silmarillion and then the Annals of Amon and Annals of Beleriand or the Grey Annals, right? He doesn't, um, he doesn't give us those two things, the Quinta and the Annals, in parallel. Instead, Christopher Tolkien draws from the Quenta material and he draws from the Annals material and some of the other stories. And he uh, puts all of those together, you know, all of the like best and most complete and most recent texts from all of those things together into one single version as coherent as he can make it. And he calls it the Quenta Silmarillion, right? He, he chooses of the two, he chooses the Quenta structure and format and outline, you know, like the the the, the stories, the, the the chapters as they're divided, uh, in the published Silmarillion, are mostly following the Quenta chapters, not the, you know, the the divisions, of course, which are by year, um, obviously in the Annals. Um, yeah, Everett, it's really a wonderful question. If Tolkien had had a word processor, how differently would this have developed? Well, Everett, uh, I don't know. Like on the one hand, we would obviously have far less information about the development of his thought, right? We wouldn't be seeing all the cross-outs unless, you know, he had track changes on or something. Um, we wouldn't be seeing all the cross-outs. We would be seeing, um, you know, just the final version of the text. But then on the other hand, Everett, we'd probably be able to read it all, <laughs> right? And we wouldn't have to worry about um, his very, very bad handwriting when he was writing fast. Um, so, you know, uh, pluses and minuses, you know. Um, but, um, anyway, um, so anyhow, what, what we're seeing, what we're looking at in the Quenta, the number one observation I want, before we even look at any particular passages or particular changes, um, I wanted to just note the big picture that at this point, and by this point, I mean, 1951, this early period after the writing of the Lord of the Rings, he seems to be maintaining, I've developed the annals, right? I'm doing more work on the annals. I'm rewriting those. I'm beefing those up. I'm changing some of those stories. I'm developing those. These characters are emerging. Many of these, you know, the, I, these iconic elements of the story, um, which, you know, we think of as like, you know, some of these moments at the heart of the published Silmarillion. These things are all emerging, as he's revising the annals, things like, you know, Huor's prophecy in the fens of Serech, right? We were just looking at that recently. I mean, all these things are emerging. Um, but when it comes to the Quenta, he still wants the Quenta, but he sort of seems to want it in pretty much the old format. And that's pretty interesting, right? So kind of keeping that in mind, I I'm not sure... We're not going to get enough of a look. Um, of course, what what Christopher is doing in this volume when he's just giving the little the little bits right of what um, of what Tolkien changed, the default text that he's running off of 
is the text of the Quintus Silmarillion that's in Volume 5, The Lost Road and Other Tales. Um, so you can go to that. So, I mean, I thought for a little while about, like, maybe I should go back to Volume 5 and pull the texts out of there and then, um, you know, have the full text and show where it changes and stuff. But most of the changes I wanted to talk about at the end of the day, there wouldn't have been much need for that. But one of the consequences of this is that we're not going to really, in our discussion here, we're not going to really get a taste for the Quenta itself. Now, we talked about that Quenta text. Um, So if you want to go back uh, in the playlist, either scroll back in the podcast episodes for the Mythgard Academy or uh, go to uh, the Signum University YouTube page and look for the playlist on The Lost Road, and you can find those discussions uh, as we talk our way through the Quinta uh, back there. But we're not going to look at all that again afresh, though it would be kind of interesting to do so in this context, knowing that he's kind of retaining that. But we don't have time to do that. What we're going to focus on today is some of the individual bits, some of the particular things um, that he, um, uh, some some of the particular things that he is changing, right? That he is focusing on. What what were some of the some of the particular changes that jumped out uh, most to me? So, um, yes, and David Michael Roberts exactly the the the, the Quintus Silmarillion. That was 1937. So again, yeah, that 14 years that he's coming back from here. Okay. Let us look at some examples here. Okay. Here's uh, a couple interesting changes. The Valar sat now behind the mountains and feasted. Changed to, thus the Valar sat now behind their mountains in peace. Next paragraph, the placing of Hildorian in the uttermost east of Middle-earth that lies beside the eastern sea was changed to in the midmost parts of Middle-earth beyond the great river and the inner sea in regions which neither the Eldar nor the Avari have known. Okay, so what are the, t- what are the things that we can see in both? Of the- I, I, I was very interested in both of these two little changes. And again, we will remember that in previous, the last couple, uh, the last couple sessions, I have been talking about how much I love these moments where we can see him writing one thing, crossing it out, and writing another. And in a situation like this, where he wrote a thing 14 years ago, and he is now coming back and deciding which of these things is he going to change, right? The, uh, these moments of revision uh, in, in texts like this are even cooler, I think, even more interesting. So I love looking at these things. And here are two, right back to back, really fascinating ones in paragraphs 81 and 82. Notice the direction in which he is taking the depiction of the Valar. The original depiction of the Valar in 1937, after the raising of the Pelori, right, the, the, the mountains after the, the, the hiding of Valinor, we're told the Valar sat now behind the mountains and feasted. I mean, ouch, right? Like, that is, that is harsh, uh, that is to say, that is a that is that 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 is scathing. I think uh, in the depiction of the Valar, um, the question of how often and how badly the Valar screwed up. This is a question which Tolkien has altered his opinion on several times. Right, sometimes 
he's more and sometimes less harsh towards the Valar. I don't know that there's ever a reason, I mean, ever a moment where he exonerates the Valar completely, like the Valar never did anything wrong. Um, there is that, you know, he who would say that the Valar made a mistake in bringing the elves to Valinor speaks with the tongue of Melkor moment <laughs> that we saw. Um, but um, but even there, like even in that version of the text, I, I, I don't recall that he was saying they never made any mistake in anything that they did. Um, you still have them. Anyway, whatever. Point is, here, this is um, this is really the idea of them sitting behind the mountains and feasting while Middle Earth goes to rack and ruin, right, left behind. Um, it feels like a, a fairly serious indictment. Now, when Tolkien returns to this in 1951, he softens it. Thus the Valar sat now behind their mountains in peace. That's not so bad, right? I mean, you can't blame them for being in peace. I think there's still an element, right, which wouldn't have jumped out at me if we didn't have the original version, right? If we didn't know that he had originally said that they sat behind the mountains and feasted um, while, you know, Middle-earth was burning. Not burning, that's an exaggeration. But, you know, I mean, Melkor's <clears throat> ruling, this is after the darkening of Valinor, right? This is... a uh, after the return of Melkor to Middle-earth, um, that the Valar basically first defend themselves, right, by separating Valinor, but also by separating Valinor, um, cut themselves off much more significantly from Middle-earth, and therefore almost, that, not that they completely abandoned Middle-earth to Melkor, but um, they certainly... Uh, remove themselves from its direct oversight. Um, uh, yes, Yarrow says, the first sounds like they're callous, the second sounds like they're just a bit apathetic. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a pretty good characterization, Yarrow. I think I agree with that. They, um, it's still not, um, still not a great look, that second version, but it's a better look than the first one. I do have to admit that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, who cares if they're apathetic, Arthur? I hear you, right? Exactly. I mean, why get so worked up about apathy? Uh, it's uh, not worth the trouble. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so, no, they, um, they are... Well, anyway. So it's interesting to see the direction that he's going, but also he's, this is not a total course correction on his part, right? Um, He's softened it, but he's not fundamentally altered it. Now, the second one, first of all, the main, the first thing that strikes me, the difference between, so he's talking about where is Hildorian, that is the place where men first awoke, the second comers. Um, in the first, in 1937, he says that Hildorian is in the uttermost east of Middle-earth that lies beside the Eastern Sea. And this is changed to in the midmost parts of Middle-earth, beyond the Great River and the Inner Sea, in regions which neither the Eldar nor the Avari have known. So, on the one hand, there is a similar impulse to place Hildorian off the map, right? Off the known map. 
distant from anywhere that anyone has ever interacted with, right? Um, so uh, you've read other stories that take place places that uh, none of them were here, right? Um, and so we see that impulse both just first in the, the uttermost east, right, um, uh, conception there that he uses in the first time, and then in the latter one in the regions which neither the Eldar nor the Avari have known, right? Um, so this still in this strange, in these strange and totally unexplored wilds is where Hildorian was. But the number one um, uh, yes, yes exactly, David Michael. Uh, Hildorian is where men awoke, so it's further east than Quivianan. Yes, apparently. Apparently. Um, yes. Now okay one of the main things that strikes me about the differences here notice the difference in world building right? Again, remember all of these changes pre-Lord of the Rings to post-Lord of the Rings, right? And this is the thing we need to keep reminding ourselves as we're reading what he's writing about the Quenta here. It's one of the things that's so exciting about both volumes 10 and 11 of the history of Middle-earth is that we are seeing how the writing of the Lord of the Rings changes his perspective on some of his older stories, right? One of the things that we can see is how much more detailed the continent of Middle-earth is in his mind now. Because he's not only been working out that stuff on the far west coast, right, Beleriand and the areas nearby, but he's now worked out all the way, right, you know, to, um, uh, to you know, Mordor and pointing towards Rune and Harad, right? Um, he has much more... So, the Great River, that's the Anduin he's referring to there, right? In the midmost parts of Middle-earth beyond the Great River. So across the Anduin and keep going. And the Inner Sea, which is, I think, the Inner Sea that's on the map, uh, in, um, uh, you know, on the Lord of the Rings map. Uh, you know, that white space way out there in Rune, basically, right? Out in Rune, right? Go east and keep going east. And out there is where... Um, Hildorian is, where men awoke. And yes, um, Christopher suggests that the inner sea is maybe that's where Quivianan is. Maybe not. Now you may remember some of the stuff that we got in the nature of Middle-earth suggested that Quivianan wasn't there, but was a little further east than that um, because when he is describing um, like once you get through all the mathematical tables in the nature of Middle-earth, you get to his actual description of the march and him doing calculations and figuring out, you know, how long they stayed in each place and which generation of elves were born on the march in which places and all that stuff, right? Um, as he's working that out, he, he's mapping the progress of the elves from Quivianen towards the coast. Um, as they're as they're going, and you'll remember they end up near Mirkwood and in, in the in the greater Lorien region at first. Um, Karen Emroth, the heart of Elvendom on Earth, comes from that time, uh, and uh, and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so we do get some more information there from texts of around this time that Quivian, not the Inner Sea, but but they they come to the Inner Sea, they refer to it, right? So it's not that far past the Inner Sea, Hildorian, way out past that. But again. This is a, a much more um, strictly realized um, 
uh, st- more strictly realized uh, world. And yes, Chad, you're right that the Embarcanta, which is also from that 1937 period, that same um, you know, mid to late 30s period when he was trying to work the Silmarillion up for publication, the Embarcanta, which is about the maps and the world and the shaping of the world, shows the topography different uh, than we know it in the Third Age. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, once again, that's where, Chad, it would be really interesting to go back and look at some of this stuff, especially the maps and Christopher's map commentary here in this section that we read for tonight, um, and to look at that in comparison with the Embarcanta and see how writing The Lord of the Rings has changed his idea of the world and what it looks like, because it's really clear. I mean, it seems to me really clear that the process of writing The Lord of the Rings um, got Tolkien excited about world building in ways that he had never been before. Um, And that he's now thinking about things in a very different, not just with more detail, but even in a sense in a different way um, than he uh, than he was thinking about them earlier on in the Embarcanta. Um, okay. So that's one thing that I definitely noticed there. Um, yeah, even just think about the one last comment, just to basically point to the same thing. Um, the placing of Hildorian in the uttermost east of Middle-earth that lies beside the eastern sea. Um, think of, notice how he's using here mythic language, like it's mythology language, the uttermost east of Middle-earth, right? Um, as opposed to the midmost parts of Middle-earth beyond the great river and the inner sea, which is strict geographic reference, right? This is, I mean, it's still a little bit vague, right? Uh, you know, great river, inner sea, and keep going, right? <laughs> keep going, can't miss it. Um, so it's not like it's he gives us, you know, the the like, you know, Google Earth coordinates or something. Um, but nevertheless, it's very much this. You can feel the difference in genre, if you see what I mean, in those two statements. The first one is mythology. Hildorian is in the uttermost east of Middle Earth that lies beside the Eastern Sea, as we have the Western Sea, right? We know it's in the uttermost west. Well, men are coming from the uttermost east. Isn't that interesting, right? There's a a mythic significance there. I I mean, I'm not sure exactly what it is. We have, you know, we could kind of tease that out a little bit, but but that at least seems to be how that statement is working compared to um, the much more pragmatic approach that he's taking in the later in the later version. Yes, the uttermost east sounds exactly like something Reepicheep would seek. JJ, you're exactly correct about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, sorry, Chad is pointing out Quivienen was on the eastern shore of the island of the inland sea of Helkar on the earlier map. Um, uh, so the inner sea was way west of Hildorian. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So again, he's not, as I say, he's not giving us, ex- like, uh, th- this wouldn't work as a set of directions, right? You know, step one, cross the Great River. Step two, pass the Inner Sea. Step three, can't miss it, right? No, you've got a huge amount of space to cross, and it's not going to really help you find it. Um, 
Again, that's not the purpose of this passage, but nevertheless, it still shows a different kind of relationship with the story and with the landscape. Um, okay, anyway, let's keep going. Oh, man. At the end of paragraph 88, my father penciled on the manuscript. He, Feanor, gives the green stone to Maedros. This is at his Feanor's death. Right, Fanor's death scene, he gives the green stone to Maedros, but then noted that this was not, in fact, to be inserted. So he wrote that and then was like, nah, don't add it. It's fine. <laughs> right? Okay. And then a few paragraphs later in paragraph 97, a new page in the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript begins with the opening of this paragraph. And at the top of the page, my father penciled, this is after the rescue of Maedros by Fingen. So the, 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 the rescue is what's happened in the interim there. Um, at the top of the page, my father penciled the green stone of Feanor given by Maedros to Fingen. This can hardly be other than a reference to the Alessar that came in the end to Aragorn. Cross-reference the note given under paragraph 88 that I already quoted up there, referring to Feanor's gift at his death of the green stone to Maedros. It is clear, I think, that my father was at this time pondering the previous history of the Alessar, which had emerged in the Lord of the Rings. Um, now, of course, he, uh, Christopher points out, of course, he included a big section on the Alessar in Unfinished Tales, including the further thinking that Tolkien did. He decided it was not going to be Theonor who makes the Alessar, it's going to be Celebrimbor who makes the Alessar, right? So he, he wrote a couple of Celebrimbor stories. Well, stories, I say. Scenes, perhaps, more fair. Um, scenes and outlines, essentially. But included in that uh, was the, uh, the paragraph which points plainly to the um, unrequited love triangle between Celebrimbor, Goadriel, and Celeborn. Um, but anyway... Um, uh, yes, uh, uh, exactly. So, um, David, Michael, yeah, the, the two LSR theory is part of it. Yeah. That there was like the, like big old fashioned hardcore LSR. And then there was the like knockoff copy that was made later on. And it's the modern knockoff copy that Aragorn has. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, JJ says, fi finally proving uh, that Celeborn can succeed at something. That's right. That's right. Um, well, I mean, always, JJ, like, the one thing Celeborn has always done is, like, get the girl somehow, right? Like, that's that's never been the mystery. The mystery is why. But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. Okay. So, anyway, that's not important. The important thing is, this is really interesting, right? Um one of the things that he's doing, the LSR is one example. Of course, Unfinished Tales is full of these things. This is one of the most fun things about Unfinished Tales is that you can see so many things that emerged during the writing of that story that Tolkien had no idea, right? That like one of the first things that Tolkien does when he finishes The Lord of the Rings is sit down and figure out the stories that he didn't know, right? That he encountered, like, oh, so Aragorn has this green stone, like that Galadriel gives it. Where did she get it? What, what's, 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 the, what's up with that, right? There's this green stone. It's clearly important, right? I mean, uh, Aragorn tells Bilbo he has to include a green stone um, in his Arendelle poem, 
It's his only editorial suggestion, right? Um, anyway, so this green stone emerges, the elf stone. And so Tolkien begins to ask, what was that? I wonder, where did that come from? That has to have a history, and that history has to be worked into the Silmarillion history somehow, right? Not to mention questions like, what was Goadriel up to this whole time, right? That's another big question that he's trying to answer. Um, and of course, there's so many other things. The Palantiri, right? Where did they, what, what's up with them? Where did they come from? Where were they all this time? Um, all of these... Um, uh, all of these questions, all these things that emerge while he's writing. Galadriel, of course, being one of those things that emerged while he was writing. Ents being another thing that emerged while he was writing The Lord of the Rings. All these things. And now he, he gets to figure them out, right? She gets to, um, uh, she gets to say, hey, um, uh, yeah, what's, uh, what's happening here? So anyhow, okay. Anyway, so his this I think based on what Christopher says is one of the seems to be one of the earliest versions of this that when he's trying to answer the question what was the green gem right what was that elf stone that Aragorn has pinned on his breast his first impulse was Fanor made it it's a Fanorian gem. And the history, the first version history, Fanor gives it to Maedros on his, not deathbed, but on his death tundra, right? Um, as he's about to die, he gives it to, My, to, to Maedros. And then Maedros, when he is rescued, gives it to Fingon. And so thus it would come down through the line of Fingon and somehow end up in Galadriel's hands sooner or later. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so fascinating that that's his first impulse. Notice, by the way, notice how dominant Feanor is in Tolkien's imagination, right? It is a fascinating... It's so easy to forget. I, you know, I think about, of course, the jokes that um, that our friends at the Prancing Pony are always making about Feanor and the, you know, the Feanorian, you know, the Feanor pinata and all that stuff, right? Um, they make a lot of jokes about uh, Feanor and his bad behavior. And it's easy to get into that mode, right? I mean, they're, they're totally not wrong, right? I totally sympathize with all of that. But it's very clear that when Tolkien thinks of Feanor, you know, you walk up to Tolkien and say, Feanor, right? The first thing he thinks of is not, you know, the epic bad actor, right? The, uh, the, 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 the maker of many, many horrible, horrible decisions. He keeps coming back to Feanor as the the wellspring of all of the, like if there's a magic, an important magical thing, probably Fanor made it right. The greatest craftsman, the greatest inventor of all time, right? The Silmarils, of course, get lots of press. Remember, of course, he did this with the, with the Palantiri, right? Um, he did this with the lamps, right? They're going to be magic lamps. Well, Fanorian lamps, Right, he did this with the Palantiri. He's now doing it with the Alessar. It's his first impulse, right? If uh, if that stone that Aragorn has 
is in some sense a magic stone, if it's got some kind of virtue to it, which, as we could see from the later versions, was his impulse, um, then, uh, and connected with healing, of course, uh, then, then yeah, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna send that straight back to, 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 to Feanor. Now, again, he changes his mind later on. He settles for Celebrimbor, right? Celebrimbor, who's like the poor man's Feanor, right? But, um, uh, but, but his first impulse was to take it straight back to Feanor. And this, this is, again, he has this impulse all the time. Um, and it's really important for us to remember that, and again, not disagreeing in any way about the, you know, the horribleness or, you know, and not criticizing anybody for feeling impatient with Feanor. Um, but at the end of the day, Feanor to Tolkien, what he keeps coming back to is craftsmanship, inventor, the maker of amazing things. Um, right. <laughs> and Tengwar chat. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's keep going. Speaking of Goadriel, this is a passage which is familiar, um, but again interesting in this context, approaching it, uh, you know, from this 1951 perspective. Because Goadriel has no backstory. We cannot forget, Goadriel was invented as he went. She was as unexpected. Uh, she was as much a discovery on the road as was Treebeard or Rohan or, um, uh, you know, the Palantiri or by any of these other things, right? Um, so, but the status that she achieves within the context of the story, absolutely necessitates a significant backstory from her. So, you're talking. You've just been writing the Grey Annals. What do you do? How do you integrate? Go, what? Where could Goadriel fit? Um, you, on the one hand, in order to make Goadriel the hero of a bunch of stories in the Silmarillion, you'd have to rewrite a bunch of them. And maybe you're not excited about that in 1951 when you think you've got a pretty short deadline, right, uh, to turn around a publishable version of this to get that out to the publishers to get them to publish it with The Lord of the Rings, right? So you're on a timeline. You can't rewrite all the stories with Galadriel as the hero of, of the stories now, right? But so you've got to squeeze her in somewhere. Where do you park her, right? Where do you put Galadriel in the first stage material that makes sense. Especially, you know, when you've been writing the Grey Annals. And it came to pass that Inglor and Galadriel were on a time the guests of Thingol and Melian, for there was friendship between the Lord of Doriath and the house of Finrod that were his kin, and the princes of that house alone were suffered to pass the girdle of Melian. Then Inglor was filled with wonder at the strength and majesty of Menegroth, with its treasuries and armories and its many-pillared halls of stone, and it came into his heart that he would build wide halls behind ever-guarded gates in some deep and secret place beneath the hills. And he opened his heart to Thingol, and when he departed, Thingol gave him guides, and they led him westward over Syrian. 
Thus it was that Inglor found the deep gorge of the river Narag, and the caves in its steep further shore, and he delved there a stronghold <clears throat> and armories, after the fashion of the mansions of Menegroth. And he called that place Nargothrond, and made there his home with many of his folk, and the gnomes of the north, at first in jest, called him on this account Felagund, or Lord of Caverns, and that name he bore thereafter until his end. Yet Galathriel his sister dwelt never in Nargothrond, but remained in Doriath, and received the love of Melian, and abode with her, and there learned great lore and wisdom concerning Middle-earth. Okay, so let's start with uh, Galadriel, and then we'll come back to we'll come back to Finrod here. So, Galadriel. The first thing to notice is that her name is still Galadriel, uh, right? With the uh, with the ev there, uh, uh, you know, the th instead of the instead of the d. Um, and Tolkien notes elsewhere that he only changed it. To, he was thinking of doing that, or or or, or even spelling it. D H, I, G A L A D H R I E L, in the Lord of the Rings text itself, but he settled on the just the D, because the D H was too uncouth, to English readers. It would just basically look too weird, um, so, it sort of seems that like in his heart, he always thought of her as Galadriel. Uh, with the with the th, you know, there were the dh there, which means a voiced th. Galadriel, not Galathriel, but Galadriel. Um, it seems like in his heart he always thought of her name that way. The d was like a compromise, because he thought the public wouldn't couldn't handle it essentially. Um, so that's one thing that we remember here. But again, remember this is post Lord of the Rings, so he's already settled on the d for Galadriel's name in The Lord of the Rings. But when he goes back and integrates her into the Silmarillion, what does he do? Keeps the DH. Right? He keeps the he keeps the he keeps the Ev. He keeps the TH sound. So that's why I think in his heart he never changed it. Right? I think he he always thought of Galadriel Galadriel that way. Um but um uh but in a, so that's one small thing. Um where um where do you Park Galadriel if you don't have time to write new stories with her at the center but you want to set her up for the role that she's going to play in the third age and the very very big deal that she is bigger and bigger deal all the time Galadriel is one of those characters who loomed larger and larger in Tolkien's imagination, it seems, in the years after the writing of The Lord of the Rings. You can see this in his letters. You can see this in some of the other essays that he wrote um, in unfin that get published in Unfinished Tales. Um, Galadriel and Gandalf, especially Gandalf. Gandalf is number one. Galadriel is kind of a close second of um, these characters whose stature like rises and rises in retrospect, essentially. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, okay, so what do you do with her? You, you put her in Menegroth, right? You put her in Doriath. But remember the whole new perspective that we've gotten on that now. Remember how Melian looks 
from the perspective of the Grey Annals. From within the frame of this time period, time period in Tolkien's life, I mean, 1951, from the standpoint of 1951, he takes Galadriel and he says that she received the love of Melian and abode with her and there learned great lore and wisdom concerning Middle-earth. Remember who she is, Melian, right? She is the genius loci of Beleriand. She is like the... She, she, Melian is to the continent of Beleriand, right? the subcontinent of Beleriand, as Tom Bombadil is to the Old Forest, right? Um, she is a huge deal. She is the local goddess of Middle-earth. And Galadriel becomes her pupil, right? Galadriel, you know, she, she, she becomes, Melian becomes the mentor of Galadriel. Um, this is not just, um, this is not just like, a, you know, a training course in how to be a queen. Uh, this, in the, again, in the 1951 context, in the context of the Grey Annals that we read, remember the huge mythic significance of Melian and her relationship with the, entire, with the land. Now, it's not to say that Galadriel achieves the same level, right? That she can do what Melian can do, that she has the power and the stature of Melian. She doesn't and she can't. And yet, remember what happened to Thingol. Thingol joins himself to Melian, and he is transformed, right? He becomes, a, like, technically, you know, he's, he's sort of, um, he's, he's sort of a dark elf in the sense that he never went to live over in uh, Valinor, right? But he is one of the Calaquendi on two important uh, technicalities. One, he has seen the light of the trees, right? Because he uh, he did have that whistle stop tour of Valinor uh, with the other two ambassadors at the beginning. So he technically did go to Valinor and see the trees briefly, um, but then he marries Melian and seriously levels up, right? Um, and when he emerges, remember the way that he is talked about. He is almost like a god himself. And Galadriel is taken on as Melian's apprentice. So, remember in The Lord of the Rings, when Sam is functionally praying to Galadriel? And it seems like she's answering his prayers, right? I mean... You know, what exactly is going on there is hard to understand in some ways. And um, even Sam seems a little bit uncertain about it, right? Um, uh, that is to say, on the one hand, you know, he says that he would ask the lady for light and water, and then light and water both come, right? And on the one hand, he is grateful. But he also says, like, he can't wait to tell Galadriel about it, as if like he's assuming she won't know, right? So he's not exactly treating her like a goddess, uh, saying like, oh, Galadriel has visited her blessings upon me. Um, it's not quite that. But anyway, um, she, <clears throat> she is in that position. She is, we see her in this 
quasi-divine role um, with her power investing Lothlorien. Um, and there are several statements that talk about that, that, you know, the um, you are stepping within the, the power of the lady, right, when you enter into Lothlorien. Um, it's very Melian, right? She, um, uh, she didn't just learn this. She didn't just study these techniques. I think that what we're seeing is she is, he, he's, is, I see in that last sentence there, now, in the context of the uh, Grey Annals, I am now seeing an implication that he is, a, I think he is attributing to Melian a blessing, an augmentation of Goadriel herself. You know, just like the four hobbits, when they come back to the Shire, are changed. They're different, right? They have, they have encountered and been among the high and the great, and they come back changed, lordly, right? They're not like normal, ordinary hobbits anymore. And we see this idea of the of the of the elevation of the ennobling of the lesser through contact with the greater it happens dramatically with Thingol right uh, Melian's husband but I, I think he's retconning that into Galadriel as well so having written Galadriel having built her up into her mind until she um, is uh, this you know this figure who has invited for many people parallels with the Virgin Mary and all these other things. Um, big, big stature for Galadriel. He's now going back and retconning this and saying, yeah, it's Melian, right? Um, in the context of the, the great Melian that he has depicted, that's now retroactively an explanation of Galadriel. Um, now, Finrod. The first thing, of course, is the names. Um, we may remember, of course, uh, you know, we have reason to, if you, if we, you know, read the appendices carefully, we know um, that the name Finrod was not yet attached to this dude, the Lord of Nargothrond and Galadriel's brother, uh, yet at the time of the writing of the Lord of the Rings. So that when Gildor in Glorian in the Lord of the Rings... Right when Frodo meets him in the Woody End, he said, and he says, "I am Gildor of the House of Finrod." Um, almost all modern Tolkien readers immediately think of Finrod Felagund, but that is not what he is saying. Right when he says, "I am, uh, I am Gildor of the House of Finrod," he means, "I am Gildor of the House of Finarfin." Right. So at this time, still 1951, post Lord of the Rings. Finrod was the third son of Finwë, right? So the, him whom we know from the published Silmarillion as Finarfin was Finrod. And Finarfin's son, Finrod's at the time, his son is not named Finrod. He's named Inglor, or in some cases just Felagund, right? Um, and... Uh, Okay, and so this, of course, does both. It gives his original name, Inglor, and then uh, an account of how he gets his other name, Feligund. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, it is the same house. Notice who Gildor seems to be, right? Gildor Inglorian, which means, if I'm remembering correctly, Gildor, son of Inglor. Yeah, son of Chad, that's what I was pretty sure that meant, right? He's saying, he says his name is Gildor, son of Inglor, of the house of Finrod, which meant at the time, I am Gildor, son, uh, he is, to translate it into published Silmarillion terms, he is saying, I am Gildor, son of Finrod, of the house of Finarfin. So, Gildor from the Shire, right, whom Frodo meets in the Woody End, is Finrod's son, according to the text of the Lord of the Rings. That's the concept. That's that's what that meant. Gildor and Gorion of the House of Finrod, when he wrote that, in writing at the time of the writing of the Lord of the Rings, meant, translated into modern terms, Gildor, son of Finrod, of the House of Finarfin. I know, kind of mind-blowing, right? Yeah, so he would be, that means that Gildor, whom Frodo meets in the Shire, is Galadriel's nephew. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um... Yes, that's what that means, or what that meant at the time. Now, when he changed the name, how was he going to retcon that, right? Now that Inglor is no longer Finrod, right? When, when, fin, when Finrod becomes Finarfin and Inglor becomes Finrod, um, whence goeth Gildor, right? And Gildor, of course, is not ever retconned back into the stories of Finrod. We don't, we don't hear, he doesn't seem to have a son. That's kind of a an important angle of the story, right? That Finrod never married because, you know, he and his fiance didn't both go on the trip, right? Um, but um, uh, anyway, it's um, it's it's kind of it's I, I I I in the way that it settles out that the story of Finrod that Finrod doesn't have a child, right? The way that that settles out, um, he uh, uh, Gildor is clearly not in the direct line like that uh, later on. But um, I think we'll, we'll see some more about this later on, uh, if I'm recalling correctly. But but at the time, I, I, and also remember, if we go back to the 1937 Quinta, we'll see that the story of Finrod's fiancé not coming over, that's not a settled thing at that point. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear. Um that um, I, th I think it's pretty clear that he, at the time of the writing of the Lord of the Rings, was in fact envisioning that Gildor was Finrod, whom we know as Finrod's son. It's really hard to talk about this with the shift of names. Um, okay, let's keep going. All right. We were noticing when we were talking about the Turin Turambar story uh, in the, at the end of the Grey Annals there, um, that there was still no meme. Um, not that meme hadn't been invented. Meme is an old, old character. But um, that meme had not been inserted into the Turin story yet. Uh, the, uh, when Turin was with his outlaws, who then became, you know, 
sort of chaotic good guys, and then he was betrayed. He was not betrayed. He was not betrayed by Meme, right? The you know Amon Ruth. It was not the House of Ransom. That element of that the Meme element of the Turin story there surrounding Amon Ruth um, and uh, Turin's betrayal had not yet entered the story. Um, Tolkien was still operating on the basis that he was betrayed by a human, right? Originally an elf and then a human. And that story is old. That goes all the way back uh, to the original Turambar story, I believe. Um, but now we are seeing it. Now in this revision of the Quenta, we're getting the, re the introduction of Meme into the Turin story, which, by the way, suggests that this is being done after that ver that portion of the Grey Annals was written, right? Okay. Against the name Felagund, my father wrote this note. This was, in fact, a dwarvish name, for Nargathrond was first made by dwarves, as is later recounted. An important constituent text among the Narn papers is a plot outline that begins with Turin's flight from Doriath and moves towards pure narrative in a long account of Turin's relations with Findulas and Gwyndor in Nargathrond which, with some editorial development, is given in Unfinished Tales, page 155-9. In this text, the following is said of Meme, the petty dwarf. Meme gets a certain curious liking for Turin, increased when he learns that Turin has had trouble with elves, whom he detests. Meme, that is, detests them, presumably. He says elves have caused the end of his race and taken all their mansions, especially Nargathrond, Nuluchizdun, Nuluchizidun, Above this dwarvish name, my father wrote Nuluchizdin. This name was used misspelt in the Silmarillion, but that's another one of those classic Christopher Tolkien moments, right? Um, he doesn't speak of himself explicitly in the first person there, um, but you've got to love when Christopher Tolkien goes out of his way to point out, point out things he screwed up in the Silmarillion, right? Yeah. Not only did I include the, the wrong name, I misspelled it, right? He says. Um, so... Uh, Christopher is so... Uh, his editorial posture is so humble. Um, but anyway, all right. Um, this idea of meme... Not just of meme, because we're not, we're not going to really be talking yet about meme's role in the Turin story. That'll come in later. Um, or that is, we'll discuss that later on. Um, what is coming in? What is entering to the story here in the uh, in the Quinta Silmarillion revision is the concept of the petty dwarves. This idea of this, um, like, what is it? What is the idea of the petty dwarves? Um, this is something we've been kind of interested in. At least I've been interested. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for the moment when the petty dwarves actually enter into the story. And it, here we go. This 1951 revision of the Quenta seems to be the moment when the petty dwarves come in. Now, remember, I said that Meme is an old character, right? Really, when I say old character, he's an old character in every sense of the word. Meme uh, was not only a character in the original Book of Lost Tales, the character of Meme looms over the Book of Lost Tales to such an extent that the curse of Meme uh, begins to be more influential to the plot than the Silmarils themselves by the time we get to the end of the story. Um, the story of the Nauglifring 
uh, which is the original Nauglamir, the, a name for the Nauglamir, the, 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 the dwarf necklace. Uh, when that is taken from Meme, so Meme, Meme's role in the story is the like he's the one who's killed by Hurin. Uh, he's killed by Hurin, and the Nauglafring is taken from him. And when it is, he levies a curse on, uh, you know, he he levels, I should say, a curse on Hurin and his men. Hurin is not alone at the time when this is done there, um, and um, uh, <laughs> anyhow, he. He then so he curses Hurin and then he curse and he curses the treasure and this ends up bringing this this end, the curse of meme uh, it just like never ever goes away like it continues to be operative all the way through and including the journey of Arendil. Um like the curse of meme is still serving to screw up the the journey of Arendil itself uh, in the Book of Lost Tales version as far as we he didn't write the whole Arendil story but. Their stu- the outlines that he wrote suggest that. And I, when I say he is old in more than one sense, in so he's he's old from a literary perspective in that he was a character in the stories way, way back at the beginning. He is also old um, in a sense that he was the original dwarf. His in the in the old stories, Meme was the fa- he was Durin, basically. Meme was the the father of all dwarves. He was the original dwarf, um, so he was a huge deal. So meme was memes meme memes been around, right? But uh, the concept of the petty dwarves now that that's the thing that's new here. Again, remember meme was not only not a marginalized dwarf in the old versions of the story; he was the mainstream of the mainstream, right? I mean, he is he was the wellspring of all dwarves, right? Far from being an outcast. Um, you know, an outcast, marginalized dwarf. But now, now he's a petty dwarf. And what is the what is the note? What do we um, what do we see emphasized about Meme here? His detestation of elves. His complaints about elves. Right. Um, it's the animosity between elves and dwarves. Not only does he just hate on elves, he says that they caused the end of his race and took their homelands. It's a big deal. There's serious accusations he's making against the elves there. So this... This story, this... The word I'm tempted to use, it might not be a fair word, I'm tempted to call it an unnecessary story. Unnecessary in the sense that it doesn't solve a problem or something, right? There are some problems uh, in the stories that, 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 that need some kind of solution, right? There's a, there's a role in a story that a particular character can fill or, or, you know, a change to the story makes the story work better, makes it more streamlined in some way, right? We don't need petty dwarves. Like, they don't, their story isn't going to be central. In fact, of course, if you read the published Silmarillion, you may think, as I always thought, reading the published Silmarillion. I mean, again, I remember reading it when I was younger. Not that young, because I failed to read it when I was young. Um, But when I was younger, reading the published Silmarillion, I recall thinking like, man, this stuff about the petty dwarfs is pretty random. 
like randomly these references are sort of randomly shoehorned in. I wish we had the whole story of the petty dwarves, right? Where do they what 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 is up with them? Why are they there? What exactly did the elves do to them? I mean, is is Meme right? Um, is he like is is he misunderstanding? Right? Is this a, is there a person a perfectly rational explanation for this whole thing? Um, yeah, and Jeremy, I agree. Connecting everyone's favorite elf. Finrod to genocide sounds problematic. It sure does. It sure does. Right. And yet this is the impulse that Tolkien has where he's like, okay, no, let's add a little texture to the dwarf concept by having this separate subspecies of dwarves, which has this, not just an animosity to the elves, but has bad blood with the elves in these ways. Right. And I'm going to use it, what's more, not to solve a problem in one of my older narratives, but to create a problem, right? Hey, don't you love Finrod? Isn't the story of Finrod great, right? Finrod, Felagund, Lord of Nargothrond, who doesn't love Finrod, right? And now here in 1951, Tolkien's like, actually, you know what that really needs? An indigenous people problem. Yeah, yeah. Let's impose that on Finrod. Let's... um. Let's levy an accusation. Let's just let's just paint an asterisk next to the Nargothrond story and say, P.S. They stole it from the petty dwarves and possibly annihilated them. Right? Like seriously, that's does that seem like a good idea? That's what Tolkien did. Right? So why 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 does he do this? Right? What is going on? So I, we'll we'll see more as the um, as the petty dwarves emerge and as memes character emerges in the story. Um, but this is certainly something I'm going to be interested in. I certainly don't think that the version that, you know, what we get in the published Silmarillion represents the, um, you know, the, the, the full, um, uh, the full scope, right. Of where the meme story and the petty dwarf story might have been headed, you know, to, in Tolkien's mind. I don't think he developed it fully. But I'll be interested to see, you know, as we go through to talk about what, what we get. Now, uh, Copperfinch on Twitch um, is talking about Meme's Curse versus Feanor's. Is Meme's Curse a prerequisite uh, to the Silmaril story? No, no, no. No, it overtakes it. The Curse of Feanor comes first. Curse of Feanor comes first. The story, it's the, hey, it's the Silmarillion, after all, right? Tolkien called it that way back in the day. Um, it's the story of the Silmarils um, and the Oath of Feanor and the, the horrible ramifications of the Oath of Feanor, right? And it keeps coming back and it keeps... And it's the driving force of, well, a large percentage of the tragedy in the story. But in the original story, in the Book of Lost Tales, there comes this second dynamic, right? Um, up until... Up until the point when Hurin takes the Nauglafring from Meme, um, you know, a very significant percentage of the horrible tragedies that occur uh, are due to the curse, of, to the Oath of Feanor, right? Then Hurin takes the Nauglafring from Meme, and Meme lays his curse on it. And after that, you know, you can, you can start like a scoreboard, right? Um, you know, you can keep score like uh, horrible tragedies attributable to the Oath of Thanor on one side and to the Curse of Meme on the other side. Um, and Meme makes up rapid ground 
in the latter portions of uh, of uh, of the Book of Lost Tales. There are still some things, you know, the uh, the Oath of Thanor still gets its, uh, you know, tragedies uh, afterwards. Um, but boy, uh, the Curse of Beam really is uh, is fairly is fairly prominent. Um, yeah, Tomas, that's a really great question that I never feel that I have understood. Why petty? Why does he use the word petty exactly? Um, I I think, Abelard, that it does have to do with size, that they're sm physically smaller than the other dwarves, but it's that's not... They're not sufficiently smaller to make that a defining characteristic, I don't think. Um, I mean, it's not like they're two feet tall or something like that. Right. I mean, they. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't done this, but it would be interesting to do a word study of Tolkien's use of the word petty. No, I do not believe that the word petty means like vindictive, more like petty larceny. Everett. Yes, exactly. Um, unimportant, uh, minor. Um, uh, one use of the word petty I can think of off the top of my head in the Lord of the Rings um, is the phrase petty kings. Um, a petty king, right, like petty cash. That's exactly the context like that, Evil Dr. Cannon. That's just right. Um, a petty king is a king, you know, who's a king of a country uh, in his kingdom stretches from like here to like, uh, you know, a furlong in every direction. Right. Um, uh, so I think that, but, but again, even then in what sense, in what sense individually as a people, like, are they unimportant or, you know, is it, are they the, like, are they just like the minor league dwarves? In some sense, like, what exactly, you know? Um, uh, so I'm not really completely sure. Now, Leafa Starlight, that's a really great question. Um, the name does seem to have an aspect of rudeness in its diminishment of them. Uh, that is, you know, if you were to call a king, somebody who's like, I am king, and you're like, well, you're a petty king, right? Um not just as an adjective, like you're a king who is petty, right? But uh, you're a petty king with a hyphen, right? I doubt that the king that you're talking to would be delighted to be called that, right? Um, uh, yeah. Oh, there we go. Maureen has one. Turin's thought. Turin. Turin's thought again uh, rose above his life in the wilderness as the leader of a petty company. Very good. Very good. The leader of a petty company. Yes. Um, you know, a an insignificant band of outlaws that isn't accomplishing anything. Right. Um, but um, anyway, so we'll see more about how this developed. But this this is the thing. Right. So I don't think this is just meme coming back. Right. I mean, it is meme coming back, but it's I, I think it's not just that. The, so they're the kind of they're the two things that are going on, both of which are really kind of interesting independently and that in combination, I find them very interesting. One, 
Tolkien's invention of the petty dwarves and all of those problematic implications that that creates, right? And then secondly, him reaching back, taking meme out of mothballs and making meme a petty dwarf, right? Okay, no, I've invented Durin now, right? I, I wrote the poem and everything uh, in The Lord of the Rings. So um, Durin, Durin is the, the headliner. Durin is the OG dwarf now, right? So meme has been... Uh, ousted, mythologically speaking. So I'm, But I'm going to bring him back, and I'm going to bring him back as the poster child for this new problematic group of dwarves called the Petty Dwarves. Um, so the choice to create the Petty Dwarves, really interesting. The choice to um, re take meme out of mothballs, really interesting, and bring him into the touring store. The combination of those two things, the identification of meme with the petty dwarves. Oh man, this is uh, that is that is fascinating stuff when you go back and look at meme in the old days. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, anyway, um, yeah, cool, cool. Um, okay, more, more on the petty dwarves. Can't get enough. This is what I, I I don't have a lot of commentary on the maps. Um, it's it's going to be really hard to do much map commentary, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. There, we're already running out of time here, and uh, uh, I haven't even gotten to concerning the dwarves, which I really wanted to talk about tonight. Um, but um, in thinking about meme and my fascination with the development of the petty dwarves thing, we can see from the maps that he is thinking about it. Right. He is the dwarf. The petty dwarves are appearing on the maps. And as he is doing more dwarf world building, or rather as he is integrating the dwarves more thoroughly into the much more detailed world building that he is now want to do, uh, he is thinking about the petty dwarves. Um, oh, cool. Maureen, awesome. Maureen is doing some great research here. Um, Tolkien also says that this is uh, Maureen in the context of the Arnorian civil wars, I think, um, that after the, the civil wars broke out, the Dúnedain were divided into petty realms. Yes, again, uh, small, relative, you know, comparatively insignificant uh, realms compared to all of Arnor. Yep. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, okay, anyway. But here are the petty dwarves showing up on the map. We get the Moors of the of the Noelglu. This is going to be a really fun slide to read aloud, by the way. Oh, that's in the Silmarillion. Oh, right. It, it, it's in the, but isn't that in the Silmarillion recap in of the Rings of Power in the Third Age? It's pointing to the, or the first part of the Third Age, right? That's still, that's the time period that it's alluding to. I might be wrong, but pretty sure that's what it's that's what I'm remembering. Anyway. Um uh okay. Um Oh interesting. Everett says apparently there's only one use in the Lord of the Rings. Um small things of border war that now seemed useless and petty, shorn of their renown. This is Faramir reporting to Denethor, right? Um useless and petty. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the same usage. Now, it's not used as an adjective there, like petty realms or um, 
Petty Kings or uh, um, the Petty Company. Yeah, leader of a Petty Company. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, you can still see the core idea of what Petty means. Um, I one thing, but I, it's hard when you're using a word like that not to let the modern usage, you know, the don't be petty um, usage creep in. But I don't see any, um, I don't see any evidence for that usage in Tolkien's usage. There's, you can see how they're connected to each other. They're not wholly, uh, they're not wholly disparate ideas. Um, but the idea of pettiness in a person's uh, words, attitude, actions, right, sort of revealed in their actions, um, it's, uh, that is not, um, that's not how it's ever being used in any example anybody's found. Yes, it's used as an adjective for stuff, exactly. Um, yeah, useless and petty. Um, yeah, small scale and meaningless. Um, anyway, okay, back to the Moors of the Nuegu. Let me not uh, further postpone the re the reading of this slide. I'll do the best I can. Moors of the Nuegu. Among the Narn papers, there are many texts concerned with the story of Meme, and in these are found an extraordinary array of names for the petty dwarves. Neweg, Neweglin, Nuinog, Naugnaben, Nibinog, Nibinog, sorry, Nibeninog, Nibeninog, and Nibinog, Nibinogrim, Nibinoig, Nognith. The name on the map, Neweglu, does not occur in the Narn papers. Um, now, yes, the Moors of the Neweglu does sound like a 1920s adventure novel, Arthur. You're, you're correct about that. Um, uh, anyway, okay, so notice this. This is deeply, this list of names is deeply suggestive to me, right? Um, deeply suggestive because we know where Tolkien's stories tend to come from, right? Um, they tend to come from languages. The fact that he is in this time, in this period, you know, early 50s, experimenting with a bunch of different names, trying to find the right name for this group, shows like this is, this is, this is Tolkien's, in, you know, invention at work, right? This is how, this is how he does it. Let's, um, let's think through the names. Let's, let's tweak that. Um, so, yeah, again, I think what I see in this is this convinces me more than anything else that we've seen. This convinces me that this concept of the petty dwarves is not something, it's not just a, a little throwaway, you know? It's not just like a little reference that he was just, he kind of tosses out in a story and is like, oh, what's that? I have no idea. Let's move on, right? He wasn't moving on. He was sitting with it. He was sitting with it and trying to figure out their story. That's what the names do, 
right? This is not just, of course, he's not thinking up names or considering names the way that I might or some of you might, right? Which is just like, so what sounds best, right? You know, what am I feeling best? You know, when I when I hear it, it feels to me like the right thing. That's not what he's thinking about, right? I mean, that may, may be involved in some way. Um, uh, certainly he had a, an amazing phonoesthetic sense, but the point is these all mean different things, right? He's trying to, he's trying to, he's trying to, by naming them, right, by coming up with a name, he is trying to figure, like, what is their essence? What do I want to, what is their story? Who are they? What are they? Exactly. I need to figure this out. Um, uh, yeah, and he does sometimes change names and then go back and change the language so that it fits. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, Exactly, Fanaro's Pizza. Uh, Tolkien's form of brainstorming is philology fun. That's exactly that's exactly it. Um, yes, yes. Um, now, a couple things that I want to acknowledge, and then I think I'm going to have to let you guys go. We're getting late. Um, but two things I want to acknowledge here. First, um, somebody was just saying, yeah, Tomas was just saying that they're all dangerously close to Nibelungs, right? Um, yes. Doesn't it sound like Nibelungs? Nebinog? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nebinog? Nibinog? Uh, Nibinogrim? Nibelungs? Yes, it does sound similar to the Nibelungs. It's not the same as the Nibelungs, but, uh, but I agree. It definitely... There's some reminiscence there. Um, the story of the Nibelungs, of course... There's a ring in there and a dwarf and a curse and all kinds of things. This is, you know, one of the um, one of the great Germanic stories of all time, enormously uh, influential in Tolkien's mind. Um, he loved the story of the Nibelungs. And I will say the story of Meme. The other thing that I was going to add to that, to the just the the mere sound, like it's hard not to think of the Nibelungs when you're when I'm reading out that list. Right. I, I agree with that, Tomas. Um and it's particularly conspicuous that these names that sound like the name Nibelung are being attached to the most Nibelung-like story in all of Tolkien's mythology. The story of Meme and Meme the Dwarf cursing the treasure, which then gets taken and the curse gets like screws up everybody's lives. That it's that's a very Nibelung-like story as well. Um, it is one of the most, like, you know, Germanic <laughs> uh, 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 stories. I mean, there's some elements, uh, you know, like the story of Turin Turambar is very Finnish, right? It's very, uh, you know, he's he's doing a close adaptation of the story of Kulervo from uh, from the Kalevala. But the story of Meme and the, 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 the curse of the Nauglifring is very Nibelungs. It's very... Um, uh, very Germanic. Lots of lots of clear influence there. So yeah, it's um, it's going around. Right? But there's a very there's a very Germanic flavor uh, to this whole petty dwarf thing, right? And that's and and if if we weren't getting that from the sound of the names, which you know could be a kind of linguistic coincidence, conceivably. Um, 
you know, he's not deriving these from that name, uh, from that Germanic, Germanic name, Nibelung. Uh, but he is, but it does sound like it, right? It's hard not to think of it when you're hearing Nebinog, Nibinog. Um, but, um, but at the same time, when he brings in meme, when he connects meme and the curse of meme to it, it's, um, it's kind of a smoking gun. There you go. Dolores Stroke says, everybody needs to join Isaac Schendel's middle high German space class. They're reading the, the Nibelungen lead in middle high German. Oh man, Dolores Stroke. I like I was this close to learning Middle High German just so that I could read the Nibelungen lead and um uh uh Wolfram's Parseval and uh Tristram's uh um uh what do you call him? Uh, the Tristram and his old um the, uh, um by Gottfried uh von Eschelbach. Uh, uh, um no Gottfried von Strasberg Wolfram von Eschenbach. Anyway, those three poems, I, I loved those stories, and uh, I almost learned Middle High German just so that I could read those, but I didn't have time, and I ended up going a different direction. But um, yeah, so good. So excited um, that Isaac is offering Middle High German in space. Um, Gottfried von Strasberg, so good, right? I mean, his, his Tristan is my favorite Tristan story um, of uh, the whole, of, of, in all of the Middle Ages. So good. So good. Anyway, all right, so... With that commercial for Middle High German, uh, we will leave, we will leave off today. Um, uh, next time, more dwarves, much more dwarves as we continue. Uh, hang on, I gotta we gotta we gotta figure out where we're going up to. I actually forgot to do this. All right, hang on a second. Let's figure this out. Let's see where are we going. We're gonna read through. Hmm. Let's read through. The Fall of Fingolfin. What do you say? Yes. Let's do that. Let's read up to, but not including... Hmm. Nah, I'll tell you what. Let's keep this simple. Read to the end of the Quintus Silmarillion section. We're probably not going to get to all of it. I'm not going to lie. Probably not going to get to it all next time. But rather than subdividing it randomly, um, read to the end of the Quintus Silmarillion section, and then we'll see how far we get next time. All right? Should be back next week. Uh, looking forward to seeing some of you at TexMoot, I believe. Uh, so see some of you in San Antonio in just a few days. Um, but uh, otherwise, I will see you guys uh, in uh, uh, here next week. Um, excellent. Awesome. Looking forward to seeing you, Chad and Matt, I think, and maybe a couple others of you. Uh, so thanks very much, everybody. See you guys soon. Talk to you later. Bye now.